0: church of Pergamum and it's interesting when we look at these first century churches I mean we just sang a song and we said praise to the king of kings you are my everything and the question is do we mean that the first century church shows us what it means for him to be the king of kings in our lives and for him to mean everything to be our everything and so I want to take a moment here as we begin once again just to look at these churches to remind us that this message is not just for the first century church of Pergamum, it's for us as well. The same Christ that was in the midst of those churches holding them in his hands, giving them encouragement, is the same one giving us encouragement today, the same one holding us in his hands tonight. And so let's remember that. But just looking at Pergamum, the city itself, uh, we already mentioned Ephesus and Smyrna. Well, these three cities, Ephesus Uh, Smyrna and Pergamum were all big cities and they were all in a a race, if you you will, for first place status in Asia. And uh, Michael Wilcock uh, says this concerning this city of Pergamum. He says, if Ephesus was the New York city of Asia, Pergamum was its Washington DC, for there the Roman imperial power had its seat of government. And so that's something we have to really take into account as we look at Pergamum, because Rome, that was its main seat of power in all of Asia. And it was wealthy. It was, it was known for its university, which housed over 200,000 books. Um, it, was a, it was a publisher of parchment and even had a certain parchment named after it. And, 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 and the city was also dominated by a huge hill that ascended over 1,000 feet above sea level, and upon that hill were many pagan uh, temples. And there was four basic deities, if you will, little, little gods, that were worshipped here. Uh, Athena, Dionysus, and Zeus, of course. And Zeus was on his temple. It had the inscription, The Savior, Zeus the Savior. But the most frequented temple was that of Asclepius, Asclepius, and he was the healing god, and so Pergamum was known as the home of this god of healing, whose symbol was the serpent, winding around his throne at his temple, and it's today still the symbol of modern medicine, right, the simple, or the, simple the serpent, <laughs> and, and so this was huge. People would bring their people, their, their sick loved ones from miles away, to this, quote, healer. Now, not just these gods, though, all right? Not just these, you know, Roman and Greek gods, but there was also three different temples in this one city dedicated to the emperor of Rome. Matter of fact, the first emperor worship temple was erected here in this city. So this is a hotbed for this pagan, humanistic, satanic Revolt against God, really, is what, what we see here in, in this city. Um, when you think about this, the emperor of Rome wore the titles, and was, it, he was he was attributed these titles, Lord, Savior, and God. That's what they would call the Roman emperor, right? And, and so, so Christians who lived in this place faced an impossible situation, right? I mean, uh, it was about impossible, to live as a Christian, a thriving, vibrant Christian, doing what Christians are supposed to do, obeying their Lord, and not be persecuted. So let's look at what Jesus has to say to this church It's in the midst of that place. Revelation 2.12. He begins with, again, a familiar greeting from chapter 1. Remember, all of the churches receive a description of Christ, one of the descriptions already given him in chapter 1. And this one verse 12 says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So that was an attribute um, attributed to Christ in chapter 1. What is this? Okay, the sword. The sword, right? We've heard of something called the sword of the spirit, right? In Ephesians chapter 6, we hear of the sword of the spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6, we see the the armor of the believer, right? It's kind of a metaphor that Paul gives about arming ourselves and being equipped to to, to do battles. A Christian, arm yourself, right, with the armor of God. And in verse 17, it says this, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, Well, what is the sword of the Spirit? Which is the word of God. So the Bible itself defines what the sword is. It's the word of God. Jesus himself is the word, right? That's why the word proceeds from his mouth when he returns. That's why he's called himself here. I am the sharp, two-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12. What does it say? It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this is the word of God, right? And this is the power it has. It's the thing that will cause that, that hard-hearted son-in-law or brother-in-law or mother or aunt or neighbor, coworker that is The only thing, the word of God, that's going to pierce their hearts. Your reasoning and your nagging and your arguing, it's not going to do it. I mean, we can can reason with people till we're blue in the face, and we're not going to change their mind in our power. It's the power of the word of God that pierces through their heart, that breaks through the stony bondage that they're in, and shows them Christ, so notice this in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5. This I'm setting this up because this is so important as we look at the church of Pergamum and what they're facing and what we're facing. Look at verses uh, 4 and 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, talking about the word of God being our weapon. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh. So I just mentioned that, right? It's not the flesh. It's not physical reasoning, mental reasoning. No, but... Okay, we read that again. I always get excited and start preaching before I read the verse. Let's read the verse. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. They're divine weapons with divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We do that by the divine weapon of God's word, not by our great grandiose arguments and so this is so important because today arguments and opinions that's where the battle's at right arguments and opinions we see them everywhere and 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 what the bible's telling us is we can argue and we can have opinions at the end of the day the only thing that's going to destroy the strongholds of the evil one in this world is the word of god It's the word of God. That's what takes us captive and brings us to Christ. And the believers in Pergamum needed to hear this and be encouraged by this. And we need to be encouraged by this. So notice verse 13, where they're they're at. (laughs) Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now that's an interesting comment. They dwell where Satan's throne is. But look at this, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith or faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, or the word there in the Greek, literally martyrs, where we get the word martyr. That's what it means to be a witness for Christ, literally, to be a martyr for him. He was killed among you where Satan dwells. So let's think about this. This church is in a place that Jesus describes as the place of Satan's throne. It's the place where Satan dwells. Now, I think, again, it's this, this is a picture. Now, some have said that maybe he's using this verbiage because of the temple of Ascleus, where he has serpents around the, the, the throne that he sits upon in his temple. It could be that, but I think it's just in general saying that this is a hotbed for pagan worship and blasphemous sin that offends God. I mean, th- this, is, this is, can really be said of the whole world. Didn't Jesus say that this whole world is under the power of the principality of the air, right? So Satan and his demons, they do roam about, right? Walking to and fro. In Job, What did Satan say when he went to heaven in the book of Job? He said, I've walked up and down. I've gone to and fro the earth, right? And and, and what does the, the, the New Testament tell us? That Satan is like a roaring lion. He roams about seeking whom he may devour. So the devil is real. The Bible never denies that. As a matter of fact, the Bible is clear, telling us we have an enemy that it cannot be defeated by our flesh. But it's supernatural. So Satan is real. His power is real his aim is to destroy all that God has made including God's people so we can't deny that but we also can't deny that he is on a leash that he's limited also in the book of Job after Satan's complaining about he can't find anybody that you know he wants to to destroy a righteous person and, and God says well have you considered my servant Job God was God was calling the shots the whole time Satan did anything to Job. He, he would only allow Satan to go so far. Every time Satan did something, God knew about it. As a matter of fact, he allowed it for a purpose. And so there's where we, as Christians, find our hope. We don't find hope in ever destroying Satan. We're not going to. We all, you, all, you often hear this term in Christianity. People pray, we're going to bind the devil. Let's bind Satan. Let's bind Satan. Folks, we couldn't bind Satan if we wanted to. If we all got on him at once with superglue, we, 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 we can't bind Satan, right? Here's why. Christ, obviously, is the only one who can and already has when he died on the cross. So here's the thing about Christians. I wonder why we're so worried. <laughs> This is a total tangent, folks, but here's what I'm saying. We, we hear people so worried about the demonic realm and all they think about is, quote, binding Satan and fighting the demons. Here's what we should be doing. We should be praying and trusting in the victory of Christ that's already happened and going forward boldly into the enemy's territory, knowing that greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. And that's really what Revelation is all about. The dragon is real right? He hates the seed of the woman. So we we know that's true. And the book of Revelation keeps repeating that narrative, which really the whole Bible keeps repeating. But the book of Revelation keeps showing us that the dragon tries to destroy the seed of the woman and all of his children, that's us. And yet what keeps happening is the lamb perseveres. The lamb wins. So that's the glory of the book of Revelation and the message for us, the church. Now look at this. When you think about the place they live, this hotbed for paganism, this hotbed for Satanism, right? Christians were daily called upon to denounce Christ. They were called upon to denounce his teachings along with him. That's what it means, by the way. We always think, I, I, I think sometimes we think that it means to just say, I don't believe in Jesus. That that's denouncing Christ. To literally say the words, I denounce Christ. And as long as we don't do that, we're okay. You know, I never formally got upon a stand... With the accusers looking at me, and I never formally said, I denounce Jesus. Well, that's not what that means. To denounce Jesus is to disobey his commands. To denounce Jesus is to be ashamed of his commands. To be ashamed of what he says he loves. And to begin to promote and propagate what he says he hates. And that's what the Christians were called to do here. They were called to denounce the name of Christ and to uplift and worship the name of the emperor. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, says this. in, In contrast to Smyrna, where persecution arose from Jewish betrayals, in Pergamum, the Christians faced the hostility of pagans who demanded conformity to their idolatrous cultural norms. Now, do you hear that? That is powerful. That's what we need to hear today, folks. This was written several years ago, but it's very pointed for us now. I want to read the last part of that again. In Pergamum, the Christians faced the hostility of pagans who demanded conformity to their idolatrous cultural norms. I dare say that's where we are today. We have a society that's demanding that everybody bow down to the image of its God. Roman Governor Pliny, the younger wrote to Emperor Trajan in 111 AD. And here's what he said in a letter. He said, Christians can avoid death only by cursing the name of Jesus Christ and proclaiming the emperor is Lord. This is what the the church faced here in, in Pergamum. Praise to the king of kings. You are my everything. We sing it. But do we mean it? When it comes to this, when asked to deny him and obey the gods of this land, we're beginning to see this pressure in our own day. Listen to this. Listen. I mean, you see it in little, little ways, right? We have bigger and bigger ways. <laughs> Man. I was just reading today where uh, Friends co-creator Marta Kaufman, Friends was a television show a few years back. It's hard to believe it's over 20 years now, right? But Friends, very progressive for its day, uh, but Mata Kaufman was the co creator, and she has recently, within the week, apologized for not calling a character on the show by the proper pronoun. Chandler's father was a transgender woman on the show, played by Kathleen Turner. During the episode, the character was referred to multiple times by the other characters as him, horror of whores. Marta Marta Kaufman said this in in a quote. Pronouns were not yet something I understood. So we didn't refer to that character as she. That was a mistake. And now 20 years later, she's apologizing for that. I mean, think about it. So basically you have a, a woman apologizing for using the wrong pronoun, misgendering a fictitious character in a TV show that was canceled over 20 years ago. So, again, at this fear of being, being somehow put in jail by the political correct police of our day, and this culturally, you know, mandated new rules that, that if you can't get on the new train that's headed for total equality and total inclusion of anything we want, then you've got to go. You're part of the problem. As I quoted maybe last time, On Wednesday night, the the Nobel Prize winner in his speech said that the Bible was full of false morals and we'd be much better off without it. To which over 70% of those in attendance, when they left in an exit poll, agreed. So this is where we are. I I, I mean, listen to this. How about this? I'm telling you, it's insanity. For, For those who are moored, who are anchored in an objective truth that never changes, A norm of norms, that norms all norms. For those of us who are there by the grace of God, this seems insane to us. But we are in a post-Christian, and not just post-Christian, and not just post-modern world, folks. We're in a post-truth world. A post-truth world. So we hear things like this from the vice president of the United States. We live in an age where the vice president questions whether or not she can celebrate the 4th of July in a country where 51% of the population has lost their liberty. Referring to abortion. Referring to the the, the liberty to murder the human child that you're carrying. It's an insane place that, that we're in. And all I can say is, may we hold fast by the grace of God, hold fast, by the grace of God, this is why, in in our verse, this, this is why Antipas was murdered, was martyred, he didn't give in, he didn't bow down and call Caesar Lord, he didn't deny Jesus Christ to the very end, and this is what we're called to do, may we hold fast by the grace of God. But persecution from the outside is not the only enemy. Look what we see in verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. Now, this is amazing. When we think about now, we're going to see the importance of truth. We're going to see how God values truth more than just our words or going through the motions of things. He values truth. This church, when we first read about him here in those first few words we would think wow they held fast one of them died for the sake of truth he was martyred because he wouldn't give in to calling the emperor god and yet jesus says in the next verse i have a few things against you and here it is you have some there who hold the teaching of balaam who taught balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So what is this about? Well, for one thing, we see, obviously, the disdain for false teaching in the church. But that's what Jesus has against them. They're putting up with, some among them, who are teaching falsehoods, teaching false doctrine. Now, Balaam is a reference back to Balaam, the prophet in the Old Testament. And in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, we see that Balaam influenced the Israelites to sin against the Lord by, by basically entering into idol worship among some of the pagan women by marrying them and, and taking on their customs. And he, began to, he encouraged this within the nation of Israel. So it's just like the teachers within the church teaching these believers, oh, you can indulge in idol worship. You can eat the food offered to idols and partake of the sexual sin as well. Now, really, what what is going on here when it says that he encouraged them so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality, all of the temples practiced sexual immorality among their worship. Most pagan temples had temple prostitutes. And, and so we're not just talking, as Paul did in Corinthians, about possibly going to the market and buying aftermarket meat that was one time offered to an idol. We're talking about being part of the pagan practice itself by eating of that meat during a sacrifice. Because it's linked directly with the same practice of the sexual practicing of sin at those, those altars. So that's, that's what he's saying. And this is what's so hard for us to, we say, come on, this is the church you're talking about. And you're saying that there were people in the church being deceived by by these false teachers to partake in false idol worship? That just doesn't sound plausible. But, folks, we are not that far removed. Does it sound plausible for a church to come out and say the Bible promotes homosexuality? That it's right? I just read an article last week where a pastor writes and he says, We, instead of putting down our LGBTQ neighbors, should be thanking God for his gift of pride of the LGBT community to the church. What? Now, we're going to take this up in Romans in a couple weeks, but who ever dreamed? That we would be holding on to things and calling things true that are false in the name of Christ, in the name of his church. The Balaamites and again the Nickelodeons, or the Nickelodeons, <laughs> the Nicolaitans, <laughs> the Nicolaitans, nothing is said of who they are. And as a matter of fact, I think it, it, it's probably best to understand this is the Greek term. For the Hebrew term Balaam. The Hebrew term Balaam means master of people. And Nicolaitan, Nicolaitan is a Greek term which means conqueror of the people. It means the same thing. We're talking about the same thing. And I think that's really what, what Jesus is saying here. You've got these false teachers who are causing the church to enter into things and call things good that are evil. And call the evil things that I have called evil, God says, good. So it's exactly a para, parallel to where we are today in our culture and in the church, because there are so many false teachers within the church that have no idea what the Word actually says. They're, they're religious. They've gone through the motions of religion and religiosity, but they have never been changed and transformed by the power of the Word of God. They've never submitted to God as their Lord and King, and now they're pr- pr- you know promoting false teaching that says, hey, real love loves everybody, right? And the church is just called to be inclusive to everybody. And if we really love our neighbors, we're not going to say anything mean or hurtful or offensive to them in any way. We're going to be sensitive to what they think and what they want. That is false teaching, but it sounds so good, doesn't it? And all of us by nature, we don't like conflict. All of us by nature want to keep the calm and keep the peace and not rock the boat. So it sounds so good and plausible to say, wow, let's just love. Let's just be calm about this. And yet, William Barclay puts it like this. The Nicolaitans sought to persuade Christians that there was nothing wrong with a prudent, conformity to the world's standards. And that's exactly what these false teachers are trying to tell us, that oh, there's nothing wrong with a prudent conformity to the world's standards. But what does it say? What does the book say that we've been given by God? It says, be not conformed to this world. (laughs) The direct opposite of what the false teachers are telling us. Let's conform to the world a little bit. Let's just meet them where they're at in their sin. No, do not conform, be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how is our mind transformed? By the word of God. And a lot of churches, again, like I say, are saying, come on, let's just, come on, let's just, we don't want to be out of touch. We don't want to be on the wrong side of history. So let's just get with the program. And as I'm saying from the book of Revelation here and, and, and from our Savior, I'm begging us, Stand fast. Do not give in to the whims of this world, to the whimsical cry. That's what it is, the the cry to be whimsical. Let's be whimsical. Let's be so friendly. Now, folks, I know you're saying, I thought we're to love. We are to love. Antipas, when he died, I'm sure he died with a gracious heart, loving his accusers. But love does not mean I conform to falsehood. Love does not mean I tell a lie to somebody. Love means I tell truth in gentleness, but I tell truth. And the bottom line is, folks, no matter how gentle and loving we are when we tell that truth, we will be hated. Because darkness hates light. So look, I know you're thinking, well, man, I don't know, man. It seems like the more we go in this culture that we live in, we're on the outskirts, right? I mean, you know, all the churches are doing this more and more we see churches who are getting with it and have the rainbow flags out front and they're in the parades and they're loving their neighbors the way we should. They're including everyone. God loves everyone no matter what. Church right down the street from my house, that's the sign. God loves everyone no matter what. So let's jump in that because if we don't, we're going to be a very small minority and we can't be that. We've got to be in the crowd. We've got to be with the mainstream churches. <laughs> Do we? Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Jesus said this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. That's what we see in our culture. And have always seen that. Bigger is not better. The majority is not always right. What does he go on to say? For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So let us be faithful. Not to worry about our faith matching what the world tells us it should be. Let us worry that our faith is what God says it should be in him. Him. Our faith should be rested solidly in Christ and upon his word. As Paul says, we should count every man a liar. Count God true, but every man a liar. That's what our faith should tell us. And like the old song that we have sang here before says, I have decided to follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. That's the call. a Christian. So let me say this very quickly. The remedy for false teaching. Here it is. Here's the remedy for false teaching. You wonder, how does it slip into so many churches? How is it that the majority now of churches in America in the West, I'll say, have slipped into something that's basically nothing more than moral therapeutic deism. Feeling good about talking about God but having no knowledge of who he is and no relationship with him. And no power for him. How does that happen? It happens because of a famine of the word of God. The remedy for false teaching is the word of God. That's what Jesus says here in verse 16. (laughs) Remember, his warning is, hey, I've got a problem with you guys. You've got false teachers. And they're leading you astray to buy into the lives of the pagans around you and to call that good. But look what he says in verse 16. Repent, therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with what? With the sword of my mouth. I will go to battle with the false teachers with my word. My word will contradict the falseness and put it out. And look what he says. I love this part of grace here that he's not going to church to battle with the whole church, but with them, with those false teachers within the church. But what strikes me about this is what he says he's going to use to defeat the false teachers. His word <laughs> with the sword of my mouth. What is the sword? We've already established what the sword is. It's the word of God. And so again, the way to, de- to, to combat false ideologies is to preach the truth of God's word and this is the problem with most churches they're not if they simply preach the word of God that's the power <laughs> right that's what takes us captive that's what ends all arguments and that's what puts away all superstitions and wives tales and falsehoods and ideologies of mankind and philosophies it's the sure word of God and it will not return void, but it will accomplish what God had sent it out to do. So the word of God is the power, and all we got to do is preach it. I mean, I'm telling you, it's crazy. I mean, I, I hear it some weeks. People say, great sermon. Wow, that's great. I'm not trying to brag myself here. I'm just saying, I've, I have heard people say this as you leave. Wow, great sermon. Man, never heard that. Blah, blah, blah. And, and my point is, If everybody would just preach the Bible, there'd be great sermons all across this nation. It's the Bible. It's the preaching of the word of God. That's the power. But if we don't preach it and preach it with conviction, then there is no power. It is the power. We've got to trust it. As Spurgeon said, don't try to defend it and explain it away to people That's what we try to do. We try to rationalize it and make it palatable and and reasonable with people. And and Spurgeon says, don't try to defend it like that. Just turn it loose. It's a lion. It'll protect itself. It'll do its job. Finally, the good news in verse 17, and this is the hope we all have, the hope that the Pergamonites, the Pergameans, I guess I should say, the Pergameans had, and the hope that we have. Verse 17. (laughs) He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How are you going to hear what God is saying to his churches? He has spoken, folks. We have a book. (laughs) And the Spirit leads us into all truth. Where is the truth found? Jesus told us, sanct in, in his High priestly prayer, in John 17, he said, Sanctify them, Father, in thy truth. And he went on to say, thy word is truth. So the way we're sanctified, the way way we're made holy, the way we receive wisdom and knowledge is from the word of God. And that's what Jesus said. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he, when he comes, will guide you into all what? Truth. So here it is. It all connects, right? Where is the truth? The word of God. (laughs) So the Spirit leads us into the Word of God. And here's the point. Here's the kicker for all pastors out there. If we're not preaching the Word of God, the Spirit's not just going to do some magic tricks in the the lobby to sanctify people. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to glorify Jesus Christ and to bring us into the truth and into the faith and to make our minds captive. That's that's what He uses. So this is why we've got to preach it. But okay, let me me just finish this. Look at it, verse 17. I love this, where we're going. To him who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a stone, a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now this is... Again, revelation. Now we're starting to see some of this symbolism that kind of blows our mind. What's he talking about? What is all this? Obviously, we know he's used the word conqueror several times already. We conquer through Christ. We are more than conquerors through him, the Bible says. So basically, he's saying, the one who perseveres because of me, you will receive the hidden manna. That's beautiful. What does that mean? Hidden manna. Now, Here's the thing. The, the world's feast is on display for all of us to see, right? It's dainties and delicacies are out there all over the place, and they are tempting, right? All of us have been there on a diet or whatever. We're, not, we're trying to watch what we eat, and you go to a wedding or something. Man, the food is all there. And then wedding cake. Oh, you got to have plenty of that. We're about to see that next week. But I'm just saying we all know what it is like, right? Well, the world is like that. The stuff's everywhere to fill us up, to give us pleasure, to so-called to make us fulfilled, right? To to, to make us fulfilled and happy. Fat and sassy, whatever you want to say. It's on display. And many Christians feed at the table of worldly pleasure. And that's exactly what the Nicolaitans and the the Balaamites were teaching the church to do. Hey, it's okay to indulge in these things. It's okay to have this self-pleasure. Go ahead. And yet for those who are faithful who do not partake. Here's what Jesus is saying. For those of you who do not give in to the worldly pleasure and take the easy way and take this quick pleasure that it offers, but you're faithful and you don't partake of the world's food, Jesus will give you hidden manna. He'll feed you more than the world could ever give you. It's hidden though. This hidden manna. Why? What does that mean? I think it's this. I, th- I think it's, it's basically, Corinthians tells us, the natural man receives not the things of God because he cannot, because it's foolishness to him. Basically, the world has no taste for the things of God whatsoever, so they don't see the manna. They don't see Christ. They don't see truth. But by God's grace, for those who have ears to hear and taste buds to taste... He gives grace, and the gospel allows the believer to taste and see that the Lord is good, the Bible says. This is what Christ is telling us. Persevere by my grace. Don't be tempted to to eat the Turkish delight of the white witch in Narnia. But wait, be faithful, and I'll continually feed you the hidden manna of my grace, and you'll see that I'm good fulfilling, more so than anything else you could ever have. John six thirty one through 35, look what it says here, because this, this talks back about the, the manna. Jesus says, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world." So Jesus is talking about himself here. He says, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's what he's telling the Pergamum church. Persevere. Don't give in to to the lies of this world. Don't take the easy way of pleasure. Don't take the delicacies it offers Be be faithful, because I'm going to feed you. I'm going to continually give you what you need. You'll never hunger, and you'll never thirst. But only Christians know this, right? Only those who have been transformed by the grace of God and arrested in the gospel have been awakened to the fact that Jesus tastes good, that he is good, that he is fulfilling. What about the white stone he mentions? What about that? He says... To the one who conquers, I'll give the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And this has puzzled many people, right? been a lot of interpretation about this. Now, the white stone is known throughout the scripture and especially history, Middle Eastern history and, and even Israelite history, Hebrew history. A white and black stone was used in in the court of law, basically, that system, where jurors would be handed a jar, and they had two stones, a white stone and a black stone. If they put a white stone in, the white stone meant acquittal, and the black stone meant guilty. So there's a beautiful picture there already of what the white stone is. One picture is it's a a stone symbolizing acquittal, right? Being acquitted of your sins, It was also used as an entry ticket into banquets where they had to limit the crowd. Well, you were given this white stone. It was a precious invitation in a sense. And if you had the stone when you entered the the, the banquet, you you could go in. If you didn't have the white stone, you couldn't come in. Another glorious picture of what Christ could be meaning here. Obviously, you have entrance through me. I'm giving you this. I'm giving you this life and this access to heaven. I'm giving you this. You didn't earn this. This says, I'll give you the white stone. You say, okay, that makes sense. But wait a minute. Why does it say he's gonna write a name on the stone that only the recipient knows? What does that mean? Well, I don't know. But I got an idea. See, I'm not just saying I don't know here, I got an idea. I mean the Bible's never explicit about exactly what that means in, in the rest of Revelation. But I do have an idea. I kind of like what S. Lewis Johnson says. He said it speaks to our intimate relationship with Christ. This name that only you'll know when you see this stone. It speaks of intimacy, right? That only you and Jesus know this kind of relationship. Let me just put it this way. So those who don't know me very well call me sir sometimes if we're out in public. Hey, sir. Excuse me, sir right? They don't know me very well, so they call me sir, or mister, or hey, you. <laughs> and those who know me better in life call me pastor. Well, no, hey, okay, I know this person. They know me. And then those who know me even better call me Greg, right? And then those who know me even better call me dad or pawpaw, <laughs> right? That's intimacy. The, the more... You know, you get these names that are meaning something. It it means Like if a total stranger walks up to me and says, Pawpaw, I'm either going to knock him out or wonder, what are you doing? Why do you call me Pawpaw? But my granddaughter calls me Pawpaw, that's an intimate connection, right? I know what she means. But there is one on earth who knows me most intimately, okay? And she calls me. Well, that's not for you to know, right? (laughs) But you see my point, right? That is a name that I know because we are intimately connected, and we have that. And that's, I think, and I like what Lewis Johnson says here, that that's his take on this. That this is showing us this relationship. Jesus knows us. And when we see that name, we know that he knows us. And it's just connection, And so, think about how powerful that is to the church in Pergamum who are watching their their church family be murdered uh, for the cause of Christ. They're being tempted daily, put on the spot to, to declare that Jesus is not Lord, but that the Roman Emperor is Lord. And every day they're facing this. How glorious is it for the creator of the universe to say, I know you, I know you intimately persevere. I'm giving you the hidden manna to strengthen you, and I'm giving you this white stone to show that you have access to me, and I have a name just for you, and I know you. And that's what he's saying to us. This relationship between husband and wife that I mentioned, it's the most personal relationship on earth, and it is a picture, a type of the relationship of a believer with Christ. That's what the apostle Paul said in the book of Ephesians. When he talked about the husband and wife relationship, and at the end of that, he said, I'm speaking in a mystery here. I'm talking about the church, about the bridegroom, Christ, and his bride, the church. This is good news for us. This is really what 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we'll close with this. you just got to put it all together here. But look at 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And this is kind of what Paul's saying here. For now we see in a mirror dimly. And that's really what our relationship to God is right now. It's kind of dim, right? We, we By faith, it's not by sight right now. I don't see Jesus before me, but by faith, I believe him through the spirit and by the word. And I've been regenerated by the gospel enough to have life, spiritual life, to long for him. But right now I see his promises dimly through a, a dirty mirror in a sense, dirty glass. But then, But on that day, at the end, when I'm standing with him, it says, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Now look at what it says here. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I have been fully known. And that's what that white stone with my name on it that only I realize, wow, he knows me fully. He knows me. This is the glorious thing that we're going to see one day, folks, that this Christian life is not just some pie-in-the-sky thing. It's a real relationship that will be consummated, and we will see Christ one day face-to-face and filled with glorious ecstasy and fulfillment that we never understand. We, We can't comprehend it. That everything that we've fallen for in this world that we thought brought us pleasure was just momentary, and it was a lie. That's why he says persevere till I come hold fast till I come do not give in even if it means your death do not denounce my name but publicly profess me before all men because I know you you're mine and one day we will be together for eternity that's that's what keeps us faithful folks may God give us grace to continue to be faithful let's let's pray Father, we thank you for this word, this encouraging word, a word that's timely because your word is perfect. it's, It's revealing to us the nature of sin, the nature of man, the depravity, but also it's revealing to us the hope in Jesus that we have because of the gospel. So Father, I pray that we will take this to heart today, that we don't have to give in, that we don't have to be afraid of being the minority Because you've already told us that few would be the ones who find the truth. Few and narrow would be the way. That broad would be the way to to destruction. And many would find that. So, Father, what we ask for is a humility that gives us a heart of gratitude that you called us from our sins by your grace, that you opened our eyes, that you gave us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that we are gathered here tonight because we want to see you. We, We love you. And we know you, and we also are grateful that you know us. Let us comfort each other with these words and strengthen each other to go back out into the fight for your glory. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.